So we are continuing uh, in our Ask Me Anything series. When Pastor John proposed doing this, I thought, are you sure you want to do this? Because we're handling a lot of big topics. And the question that we're answering this morning is, how does the church interact with political issues? Can we disagree? Should we protest? How does the church interact with political issues? And I can tell you uh, from the teaching team's perspective, these subjects are like packing three luggages worth of clothes into one. It requires so much prayer and editing and figuring out what are the things that we want to say. So it's kind of like dumping the, pulling the truck up to the Bible and just having, you know, this dump truck of, of Bible verses and stuff. So hopefully... Um, You'll be able to absorb it and take in all that we're sharing. But I want to speak to the specifics first, uh, answer these questions, and then I want to pan out to the larger view of how Jesus and the apostles related to politics. So Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your tangible presence. We thank you that you're here to encourage us, touch us, build us up. We're so grateful for who you are, Jesus. We just give you all the glory and let your word now speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how should the church interact uh, with political issues? Can we disagree? Should we protest? And I want to uh, speak to four points uh, at the outset here. The first is that before we start engaging, it's important for us to get our spirit right. Um, Before you speak or blog, give your opinion, you know, we read something online and all of a sudden our emotions get stirred up and we just want to fire off a missile. I think we need to pause for a second and say, okay, Is my spirit right? Before you start talking at the water cooler, ask yourself some of these questions. What am I trying to accomplish? Is it better that I listen and get a survey of what people think? James 1.19 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. I think sometimes we invert that and we are quick to speak and slow to hear. Am I properly informed to add to the conversation? Am I studied and educated on the issue? Well, what I say, glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What is my tone when I speak? Am I angry? Ephesians 4.26 says, You can be angry, but don't sin. Are you feeding your soul with content and watching stuff that stokes your anger and peddles outrage? Jesus never spoke out of a bad spirit. Yes, he spoke out of a vigorous spirit. He spoke from a prophetic spirit. He spoke in wisdom, with passion, and with urgency. But he never spoke out of a bad spirit. A bad spirit makes things worse. It poisons, escalates, tears apart, divides. It doesn't build up or heal or make things better. It makes troubled waters more troubled. And this is what is so discouraging and infuriating about the political course of late. Our leaders who should be models in political discussion and debate instead talk like schoolyard bullies. Stoop to name calling and come off more like infants than adults. I guess maturity is going out of style. By the way, Isaiah prophesied this in chapter 3 that infants would rule over you. So these leaders infect our culture with a bad spirit and by their actions give permission for others to do the same. It spreads like a virus. You think COVID is bad. 
This bad political spirit has spread even worse. And so it goes, our culture spirals into increasing rancor and chaos to the point where just this last week, if you were looking at the news, someone tried to assassinate a Supreme Court justice in America. What have we come to? This is unthinkable stuff. As Christians, we need to act in the opposite spirit. This was part of the jaw-dropping teaching of Jesus. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other. If someone sues you, America's pastime, take your shirt off and give them that as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Don't hate your enemies, love them instead. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus gave this to us in Matthew chapter 5. Yes, he really did teach this. And this is not a short course in politeness. This is a manifesto for becoming a head-turning, conversation-stopping, culture-redeeming witness for Jesus. If you want to become a unicorn, this is how you do it. Get your spirit right. Second thing is to study biblical political role models. Think of Daniel and Joseph and Moses and Esther. These were men and women in the thick of the political arena. How did they respond to political agendas, legislations, issues, and acrimony? Did they disagree? Did they protest? At times they did. But when they did, they did it with the right spirit and in the right manner, as I said in my first point. Daniel objected to the no praying legislation. Can you imagine if our government legislated no one can pray? That's what happened to Daniel, and he objected to that. Joseph would not enter into an adulterous relationship with Potiphar's wife in order to gain political advantage and power. Here he was, sold into slavery by his brothers. God had given this prophecy that he would be a prince in the land, and it's going in the opposite direction. And then when he's bought by Potiphar, he's thinking, okay, maybe there's a little redemption going on here. And Potiphar's wife takes to him because he's so handsome and offers her body up to him. He could have easily thought, this is it. This is my ticket. I have a little relationship on the side and I'll be able to get into political influence. That's not what he did. Moses refused to embrace the entitled political life that he could have had through his royal upbringing. Esther called on the power of fasting and prayer to save her people from genocide instead of resorting to political female seduction. By acting with wisdom and integrity and humility, these ones brought glory to God from within the political realm without becoming politicized or infected with the political spirit. When I was pastoring our church in the United States, my... my, uh, associate pastor. He was our um, administrative pastor. He had previously pastored a church and that church closed down. So he came over to our church and he became my administrative pastor. There was a call in his life to be in politics. And I encouraged him to do that. He ran for office. He got elected to be in the state legislature of Minnesota. But the thing that was so wonderful is that he had a right spirit about it. He wasn't a political animal. Rather, he was in the system as a witness and not as a politician, even though he was seated in the seat of a politician. 
And when you act like Joseph and Daniel and Moses or Esther, you act like good seed, which God sowed into the field of the world. This is what Jesus taught us in Matthew 13. There are seeds that are cast into the field of the world. There's some bad seeds. There's some good seeds. The good seeds are the wheat. The bad seeds are the tares. God wants you to stand out as wheat among the tares. Don't become a tear in the world of politics or political issues. Become wheat. This is the right way to show your influence. Number three, don't fear that you have politically incorrect views because you're a follower of Jesus. Because we study the Bible, our worldview is starkly different than the world's. We have different premises, diagnoses, conclusions, and solutions. For example... We do not believe that the most entrenched problems in our society are racism, violence, economic disparity, LGBT issues, residential schools, abortion rights, or whether we get vaccinated or not. Yes, these issues are abhorrent, but we believe the fundamental problem in the world is sin. That's the essential issue. Thus, we advocate a different public policy. Than the world. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified because this is what we need as a human race to be saved from our sins. When we address that root issue, then the diseased branches can be healed because all of our ills in society comes from us as sinful people. We created this mess. Fourth thing, never forget. That you are in the world, but not of it. Author Trevin Wax has put it this way. In a world of political and partisan idolatry, the church has a higher call. Our fundamental allegiance is not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God, whose principles and promises transcend the debate of the current moment. Maintaining some distance, disciplining ourselves to not weigh in on every controversy, These are indispensable attributes in showing the world that as the church, we have a transcendent reference point. So I wanted to start off by speaking to these specifics. And then I want to now pan out to the wider frame and look at Jesus and the apostles' relationship to politics. And here's how I summarize the pattern that's given to us. Strategic silence plus strategic non-involvement, plus a mind-blowing political prophecy equals a strategic legacy. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he truly meant it. His methods would not be political. His teachings would not be political. His aspirations would not be political. And likewise, he taught us to do the same. John 17, 24, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So let's look at each part of this equation. Part A, Jesus and the apostles engaged in strategic silence. There is nothing recorded in the New Testament about Jesus speaking out against any of the political issues of his day. Zero. Nothing in his teaching gives even the slightest hint that he had any political involvement. Jesus didn't speak in political tones. He did not engage in political issues except to bat them away. Like when he was pressed about whether taxes should be paid to Caesar. They were trying to draw him into a political debate. And what better hot button issue than taxes? 
We know the amazing response that he gave. We don't have time to go into it. There's not a single press release, blog post, podcast, or sermon from Jesus' pulpit on politics. Despite the oppressive political rule of the Romans and all the injustices that were foisted on the Jewish people. Nor do we see any political activity from the apostles except to exhort the church to obey their governing authorities. Romans 13. That Jesus and the apostles engaged in this kind of political silence took great self-control. Because there was so much about the Roman Empire to hate. During the first half of the first century, the period in which Jesus lived and had his ministry, there were many flashpoints between the Romans occupying and the Jews that they were oppressing. The historian Josephus writes of occasions where Jews would engage in massive silent protests to show their distaste for Roman policy. At other times, they would threaten to stop farming and or commit mass suicide as a way of throwing the territory into chaos and denying Romans their essential revenue. During this time as well, there was a well-known movement of Jewish believers, those from the faith community, that vested themselves in taking on the political establishment. They were known as zealots. As described by Dr. David Mosley, these zealots were considered Jewish jihadists, They launched a violent insurgency against the Roman military occupation who they perceived to be incarnate forces of evil in league with Satan. They believed it was their patriotic and religious duty of all good Jews to resist and fight the evil occupying forces. Does this sound familiar? Eerily so. Zealotry has never gone away, railing against politics, making politics a religious cause, thinking if we just install the right leaders, utopia will come. Jesus and the apostles lived in the same political chaos as we do, but they engaged in strategic silence by design. They were silent because the wine of the kingdom does not belong in political wineskins. Politics is not how Jesus or the church changes the world. Salvation does not come by politics. Part B, Jesus and the apostles engaged in strategic non-involvement. Several key points. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was tempted in the desert. Matthew 4 is where this account is. The devil offered him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You think that Putin or she are ambitious. Just think what they would have done if they were offered all the kingdoms of the world. This was a political temptation of the highest order. Jesus, you will not just be the prime minister or president of one country, but of every single nation. Now notice that the devil did not tempt Jesus with money. Sex or materialism. Those are the usual things that make men fall. Probably 99% of the time it works. Dangle money, dangle sex, dangle materialism, an opulent lifestyle. Oh yeah, that's what I want. That's some of the things that turn the world off from the church is that pastors have used their position of influence and trafficked in these areas that are so grievous to God. But the Satan did not tempt Jesus with the usual things because Jesus was above it. 
So the devil went to the highest level of temptation and offered him power, as in political power. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can be the president of presidents. This explains why billionaires either run for office after they become wealthy, or they will bankroll politicians. Political power is even more alluring than money. And this is why the church sometimes falls and is seduced by politics. They think that political power is the apex of power. But if we believe this, we have fallen into a great mistake. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Not by political power, not by political might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. My kingdom meaning my rule is not of this world. Jesus had the opportunity to become the most powerful leader, political leader in history, and he turned it down with a word, be gone, Satan. Jesus strategically distanced himself from any political involvement right from the get-go. Now, in recent days, I just read that a megachurch in Ontario endorsed Doug Ford in his desire to be the to be reelected as a leader of the Ontario Progressive Party. A church endorsed Doug Ford. We would never do that as a church. Never. Rather, our agenda would be to win every single MP and get them rooted in a local church. That's how we influence the political arena. Can you imagine if every single MP was a God-fearing Christian, went to a local church, and then they went to their jobs and brought the values of Jesus. Later on, not only did the devil offer all the kingdoms of the world, the masses wanted to make Jesus king. John 6, verse 15, they intended to come and make him king by force. So this happened after Jesus had turned the bread, and fed the 5,000. The people went crazy. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He will deliver us from Roman slavery. Our emancipator is here. Who has ever done such a miracle and taken care of us like this? So the people came to make him king by force. But what does this verse tell us that Jesus did? He withdrew to a mountain by himself. Jesus, again, resisted any involvement in politics. You cannot put a political patch on a kingdom wineskin because it will tear away the wineskin and the wine will be lost. The church cannot be in bed with politics. It will ultimately lead to whoredom or apostasy. This is also very interesting. The example of Simon the Zealot chosen as one of Jesus' 12 disciples. The scripture tells us that Jesus spent all night praying about which 12 to pick for his apostles. It's the only time in scripture that the Bible tells us that Jesus spent all night in prayer. He clearly had done it many times, but this is the only time which is written down explicitly for us. And when did he do that? To figure out and get wisdom from God, which 12 should I pick? Of all the multitudes, of all the great candidates, of all the spiritually hungry ones that are out there, which 12 should I pick? And of one of those 12, he chose Simon the Zealot, the very 
kind of person we just read about that was revolting against Rome. Yeah, Jesus selected one of those. Was it to get intel and strategy on how to infiltrate Rome as Simon would have done? No, it was the exact opposite. Jesus converted Simon to give up on political coups and instead go in on the kingdom. Simon did not convert Jesus to his political ways. Instead, Jesus converted Simon to his kingdom ways. I think this is so cool how Jesus embedded this message to us in the selection of Simon. It's like finding those Easter eggs in a movie. Movies rolling and all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. That's what's happening. You read this verse, okay, oh yeah, these are the 12 that are selected. But then, wait a minute, what are you saying, Lord? Powerful, powerful imaging to us. And then we have this thought, this passage where Jesus rebukes the fox. So Luke 13, what happens is that Herod the king was coming to kill Jesus. And the Pharisees warned Jesus to flee because the king wanted to kill him. And then Jesus' response in this verse is very interesting. He said to them, Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, this is the only time in the gospel in which Jesus makes a seemingly political statement. It seems like it's an editorial comment about Herod as a political leader. There's a slight derogatory tint to it. He's crafty. He's treacherous like a fox. But is this what Jesus is saying? Actually, it was just the opposite. When Jesus called Herod a fox, he was saying to him, stop seeing me through your political lens. Herod was so threatened by the people's love for Jesus, he felt he needed to kill Jesus lest he control, lose his control over the masses. In other words, Herod politicized Jesus' ministry as if Jesus was trying to get power. Jesus wasn't cruising around Galilee, canvassing writings and getting votes. Instead, he was healing, preaching, casting out demons, probably political demons, and fulfilling his prophetic call. In calling Herod a fox, Jesus was rebuking him for being unable to see outside of his political obsession. So from these examples, Jesus could not have given us a clear picture of political non-engagement. And the apostles likewise did as their masters. There was zero political activism on the part of the apostles. Part C. Jesus gives us a mind-blowing political prophecy. Now, Jesus gave many amazing prophecies in his life, but this is one of the craziest ones. Luke 19, as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. and said, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. This is a fierce prophecy. 
We're talking about children getting killed. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So on the surface, this looked like a prophecy about the temple's destruction. But in actuality, it was about something deeper. Something systemic that had to be brought down. It was a prophecy about Israel's love affair with politics. The reason why the people were cheering is because they thought Jesus was going to be their political Messiah. The, the king has come. Break out the palm branches. This occurred right after Palm Sunday. This was in the last week of Jesus' life. But the nation completely missed it. The multitudes were so far from understanding God's purposes that Jesus wept over the city. They mistook the visitation of God as a political event. God came to bring a spiritual solution. Jesus had to go to the cross to die for our sins. This was not about a political agenda. He came to serve by dying on the cross, not to seek power. The nation was blinded. As a result of their misplaced orientation, Jesus prophesied to them, this is all coming down. If you live by politics, you will die by politics. Your temple will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, 37 years after Jesus gave this prophecy, the temple was completely decimated. It was completely leveled. The Romans came in, besieged Jerusalem, and with ruthlessness sacked the city, massacred the population, and totally destroyed the temple, leaving the Temple Mount a desolate wasteland. Do you know what triggered the Romans to invade and to bring down the temple? This is ironic, and it's also sad. It was the zealots. Those Jewish believers, those from the faith community, that were vested in their nationalism and sovereign rights who revolted against the government. Now, in some regards, they had a little bit of a legitimate case and cause. Rome had come in to raid the temple treasury. Goodness gracious, that's the long arm of the Roman government. And so the zealots said, this, that's enough. We're rebelling. So they fought a political war thinking they were doing something patriotic for God, but they were greatly mistaken. No victory was to be had, only devastation. And this is a massive cautionary tale for the church. If the church ever looks to politics as its solution or the pinnacle of its activity, we will be humiliated and come to ruin just like it happened to Israel. There is a red line. So you add up parts A, B, C, and we end with a strategic legacy. Let me read this to you, this paragraph to you in ending. This is a poll recently taken in the United States. Americans are more likely to be unhappy if their kids marry someone from a different political party than if they marry someone outside their religion. Take a moment and let that sink in. Are you kidding me? Mom and dads are less concerned about their son or daughter marrying outside the faith than they are marrying outside of the party. 
This is insanity. Politics now has a higher priority than faith. Is this what we want to pass on to our kids? Is this what we're modeling to our kids? Is this the priority that we want the next generation to have? This finding indicates that politics has ascended to the status of idolatry. There's a golden calf in aisle 10 and we love to feed it. Full-on idolatry has entered the church. Maybe it's not such a dissimilar comparison to say that we've entered into the days like we read in the Old Testament where the people of God are so far away from the Lord, thinking they're doing God's work, but they're actually so far away from the purposes of God that he has to come and discipline and straighten out all the crooked thinking. And sometimes to straighten out crooked thinking, something very dramatic has to happen in order to stun us out of our malaise and out of our delusion. That's what Jesus did with the nation of Israel when the temple was destroyed. And if this idolatry continues to spread in the church, we need to be very, very careful and turn back to God. This is exactly what Jesus wanted to prevent. This is exactly the spirit God wanted to spare us from. Jesus lived under the oppressive Roman Empire, as did the apostles. Jesus and the twelve could have resorted to political solutions or revolutions, but they did not. This is the point of strategic silence and strategic non-involvement in an earth-shaking political prophecy. They were modeling political abstinence. They controlled themselves and stuck to their knitting. They stuck to their calling. Yes, let's be good civic citizens. Let's discuss and disagree and even be vigorous in our disagreement, but with a good spirit. But let's be even better citizens of the kingdom. That's the spirit that God wants us to possess in this hour and every hour and in every generation. This is a permanent pattern that the Lord has given to us and to the church. This is the strategic legacy that Jesus left us. Let's not get this reversed. Closing verses, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. In John 18, Jesus said, If my kingdom were here, my servants would fight for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. The inverse of this is, if you are of a political kingdom, what do you do? You fight for that political kingdom. So for all the the stuff that's going on and all the violence and all the aggression and all the fighting, it shows that people are in the political kingdom more than they are in God's kingdom. They spend hours and hours, spend money to travel here and there, to protest, to say all these things. If they spent one one one-hundredth of the time on kingdom activity, where would we be as a church? Our priorities are so upside down. Our focus and our energy and our affections are so misplaced. The spirit of Babylon has come upon us. We need to be awakened. We need to have discernment. Oh, but you're not fighting for godly legislation. You're not fighting for this or that. 
Oh, I'm, I'm fighting for godly legislation. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm getting closer to God. I'm doing what I need to do to fundamentally address the real problems in society. Oh, yeah, I can be involved in those other things, but my affections doesn't go there as if that's the permanent solution. So let's not put our eggs in the wrong basket. Lord, we look to you right now. Your scripture gives us such a clear call for where we need to put our heart, our focus, our energy. We may be entertained by all the things that are going on, but Lord, it's truly a sad and sorry state. Our country needs prayer like never before. Our world needs prayer like never before. Never have we seen such a global polarization. Never have we seen such a global atmosphere that's taken up with rancor and politics. And Lord, you need your church to rise up and to model where our true allegiance lies. Quicken us, Lord. Fill us. Give us wisdom. The wisdom of Daniel and Joseph, Moses and Esther. But most of all, make us like you. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so blessed that uh, Pastor Rich decided to tackle one of this very timely, timely topic about politics and our Christian walk. Uh, we live in a time that is that politics is so divisive, and, and the example Pastor Rich shared about families and how they want to see the, the children marry into a right political party is just an overwhelming and I guess a, is an awakening call for us and how, how much we are caught up in the politics. Many of us, uh, we come from where many of us are immigrants. Uh, some of you are blessed to be born here, but your, your grandparents or great-grandparents have come here as immigrants as well. And we may have came from a background where we uh, don't have the ability to engage in a political process. And we're very blessed that in Canada, in the Western world, that we can be engaged in the political process. But there's a fine balance in terms of how much we put our faith and our trust in that political process. And it's such a great example to that we share, uh, Pastor Witch mentioned about that out in, in Philippines, that uh, our citizen is in heaven and we are sojourner on this world here politics is such a divisive thing and what we want to be aware of is not to let that permeate into our, our church body we may have whole different political opinions but the politics is nothing new as pastor rich mentioned and share it's deep in the bible as well in jesus time and even John the Baptist, when he was put in prison, he was questioning Jesus, whether Jesus was that political Messiah that he was look, they were looking for. And when, here in Luke 7, when the men came to Jesus, they asked, are you the one who is to come or should you expect someone else? Even John the Baptist, greatest prophets question and we're looking for the political solution 
But this is what the response is. Jesus tells John's disciple to report back to John when he was in prison. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have prophecy are clean. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on the account of me. And this is our call. This is the kingdom that we live in. We, are, we might see things in the physical world. We might see things happening in our culture that, that we don't agree with. But we should look upon this, that our purpose is not the political solution, but to proclaim the kingdom. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. So, Father, we thank you for this very timely message, Lord. We thank you that you bless us in a, in a country that we are able to exercise our political uh, involvement through election, or even if we choose to engage in running for office, we are able to have that freedom to do so, Lord. But, Father, help us to focus our eyes upon who you are and to know that we are not here as a political champion, Lord, but we are a champion for the cross, Lord, that we remember what you have done for us. And it's a spiritual warfare that we are fighting and not in, the, in this culture. We're fighting in the spiritual realm, not, not in the physical. We are called to pray for our enemies, Lord, and we also pray for our political leaders. So, Father, we submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide us even in these troublous times, Lord, to be a beacon of light, to be a beacon of love, and to know that you are the, you are the one that delivers us. You are the one that redeems us. And you are the one that can redeem the, the dying world, Lord. So, Father, help us to engage our brothers and sisters and also the unbelieving world that we're here to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord that you have redeemed us, and it is through your grace and that we are saved, Lord. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for this reminder, and thank, help us, Lord, to remember that we are citizens in your kingdom, Lord. We praise you. We thank you, Father, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.